How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the it as suspicious? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with keep trying to give answers, I would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming The church is the most vocal political voice against immigration. Some churches still don't believe that worship was the actual thing. Do you understand how ridiculous that is when the majority of people on the planet end up going to hell? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the culture is moving. It seems like so much of the church Anti-critical, they are being homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world. <sighs> the church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. And today our guest is Dante Stewart. Very special guest, I'm going to add in. Dante is a writer and a speaker whose voice has been featured on CNN, The Washington Post, Christianity Today, Sojourners, The Witness, A Black Christian Collective, Comet Magazine, and more. And with a profound voice, I see I changed it from the bio on your website to up and coming. I'm like, this must be dated. This is a dated (laughs) thing right here. (laughs) With a profound voice, he writes and speaks into the areas of race, religion, and politics and he has recently come out with his newest book shouting in the fire an american epistle which i hope and believe a lot of the listeners to this podcast will definitely go and get right after they hear this because it's a book that's making this beautiful wave in our culture today he received his ba in sociology from clemson university he's is that is that still current you're currently at candler school of theology yeah 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 yep yep i'll be done this year at emory in atlanta Georgia. Man, Dante, thank you so much for taking the time to be with the listeners as a whole today and with me personally, man. I appreciate it. No doubt, bro. I'm glad to be here with you, bro. And you're with me in spirit in Hawaii, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what? Aloha, bro. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, aloha, my dog. <laughs> um, I'm going to start with this. With such a profound and powerful book, with so much good going on for you i'm going to start with the most pressing question that i see why the patent gold toe jordan ones <laughs> you know i had to do a little research through the archives why the patent with all the jordan ones out there why the patent gold yeah. well my sister is a sneakerhead so i'm not a sneakerhead i'm just now getting into sneakers i love i do love fashion and shoes um, but I'm just now getting into it. But my sister was like, yo, uh, I, you might need to get these. Like, like, cause I was, cause I was doing, I was doing my book lunch party. That's uh, what I'm right, saying. Right you know, those friends. important pictures. Of yeah. The launch. Like, it's always, yeah. You know, that's, it. that's an important moment. That's why. Nah, nah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was just, they, they fit. And then they were like, they were like the most expensive pair of shoe I done bought. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I just wanted to splurge a little bit. Like, I wanted to splurge a little bit. And I wanted to, like, I wanted to buy those because not, not too many people was walking around with patent, patent little gold toes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, even, I, I mean, I got the OG backboard. I got the uh, pollens. Uh, I'm back to, I'm, I'm getting my weight up when it comes to my shoes little by little. But, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know how often I'm seeing people wa- rocking the uh, gold toes. So, mm-hmm. I, I wanted those. Just to be a little you, bit I'm gonna ask this question. So, did you get those in person, or did you have to get them online? No, nah, I got them in person. I got, I got in my sneakerhead. I got my, I got my sneaker man here in Augusta, where I live. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. We got our sneak, our sneaker man here. Yeah, he, he good people too. 
Yeah, that's good. I actually, I'm doing a wedding this Saturday. And so I have like, I, I'm, I have to go to the wedding rehearsal this afternoon. Uh, and I have some, the Jordan, one of the Jordan ones I have is like, they're the high OG, they're the black satin ones. They're just all black basically with like a little bit of red. Mm. And I was thinking about wearing them today, but then once I went through the archives, I was like, I see those, the gold ones. I was like, I'm definitely wearing those today. So if ah, anything so you contributed, it was that today. So. Hey, so you're a sneakerhead, you're a sneakerhead. You know, I, I tell people I'm like a sneakerhead who doesn't buy that many sneakers. Okay, well, like one, you I know just a don't lot like about always buy shoes, you know, in general. I, you know, I just don't have a ton of pairs of shoes, but I do have my pairs that are some good ones, you know. So, like, I'm an Thanks. appreciator, and then I, I'll move in when the time's right to get some new ones. I'm just not like always, I don't have 50 to 70 pairs of shoes in my yeah, closet. Word. Thanks. You know, so. Thanks. But, Thanks. anyways, I just knew that's. In that moment of the book release, I know that's an important decision. So I had to start with that because I was looking at it. Yeah. You know, let's, uh, for the book, you know, obviously there's the whole, your story is in the book. And it's always important for people to know, you know, with that saying, like the medium is the message. So often our, our story is our message, you know, because it inevitably and, and is always going to flow out of who we are, where we come from, what we've seen, what we've heard, what we've been around. And but let's begin with a glimpse into the heart of this book, Shouting in the Fire. Where did the, the idea for the book generate? Like, what is the engine that drove the book, the nature of it, how you wrote it? You know, how was the book initially born within you? So I think those, that's such an important thing people don't always think yeah. about, you know, the why that gives birth to the whole. Yeah, so, so Shouting in the Fire is, you know, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's, it's both a nod to my Pentecostal tradition that I grew up in, but also to James Baldwin. Um, you know, I am, I am a Baldwin stan, like, like, and, and kind of turned into like a little Baldwin scholar, you know, in, 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 in my schoolwork. So my, my master's project is on Baldwin um, and, and reading Baldwin as a, a, theolog a theologian who was concerned tremendously about the beauty and the freedom of black life. So that's, that's a particular lens, you know, I read Baldwin through. Um, and so when I think about shouting in the fire, I think about the ways in which Baldwin utilized his own Pentecostalism to help him understand himself, to understand the world, to understand so many of the problems that were in our society, so many of the problems that he saw within the church, so many of the problems that he saw within themselves and with other people, within others. So like Shouting in the Fire is about the ability to tell the story of what's happening in ourselves and in our country, but also to wrestle with, as Baldwin and as I've done and as so many people have done, that question with what does it mean to be Black, American, and Christian? And how oftentimes all three of those experiences represent for us so many ways in which like the church in our country utilizes religion and utilizes politics and utilizes so many things to devalue us and oppress us. And it is about to shout in the midst of the fire, thinking about the three Hebrew boys in the Hebrew Bible, to shout in the midst of the fire is to believe that whatever the, the society outside of you believe about you does not have the final say. And you have the ability to take that story back and you have the ability to tell the story the way you want it. And to shout in the midst of the fire is to so believe in your future that you're able to dance in the midst of what is, in, in the midst of what is burning. 
when you first, you know, people don't always know whether it's somebody's making a film, someone's making an album, someone's writing a book or has some sort of, you know, project they're working on, how long it lives within you and is flowing through you before people see it. Like it's such a mm -hmm. long journey, you know, mm -hmm. depending on you. Sometimes you think of something seven years ago and it mm -hmm. sits with you for four years and you start and people see it three years later after you work on it. Why with your journey, your personal journey, but also your journey with writing, why did you feel this, whether it was natural or a conscious decision, like this pull to something being so like a personal story as opposed to like, you know, like a good theologian or somebody who's like, I'm just gonna write about these ideas. I'm gonna write mm -hmm. about this concept. Whereas somebody who's obviously reflecting and expressing so much theologically, but where it's being told so personally through your own story. Like why, why for you was that the thing? Yes, yeah, cause I, cause I knew like, when, when, when I think about the books that shape me tremendously, I think about the books where people talk about larger conversations, but through their own story and through their own lens and through their own experience. So I believe that story is the way that so many of us connect. It's just oftentimes that too many times that it's just often that too many times the stories that's worth telling and that people listen to are usually stories by white Christian straight men or anybody who will, you know, try to assimilate or ascend to those power structures that 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 not only benefit, but also prioritize that narrative. And so for me, I wanted to write it to 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 like implicate me in the story as well. So this this book is not a hero's journey. It is not like Hercules. Like think about Greek Greek myths. It's not like Hercules, who who in the end is like the hero, uh, or, or 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 the journey is like yo, like like you 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 win in the end. Like I'm thinking, like like for 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 me, it's like almost like Odyssean for me, and, and telling this story from the perspective of people who did not win in the end, but who became better and who took some L's along the way who had to live with the ways in which they, those L's changed their future. Uh, and so that's part of the story. Like I, I knew that I wanted to write this way because it would allow me to hold the multiple tensions. It would be the best medium for me to hold the multiple tensions. But then also I feel like Christian books as a genre, oftentimes does not lean itself to great writing. It just feels so sermonic. Like it's, it feels like the language is very technical. It feels like the language is very distant. It feels like the language is very academic. It just does not, oftentimes, it feels like it's something that you read just to know, like, and things like that. I wanted to write something that would change us as people. And I felt like writing this way was going to generate the most possible change because it would allow me the mode, the mode to write in as honest and vulnerable and as creative and beautiful a way as I possibly could. <clears throat> Yeah, I love it. And I think for people who, who grab the book, just even that answer will make so much sense as you read the book and not only learn and not learn about the ideas that Dante is saying, but actually entering into his story like he was just saying. So, yeah, man, you know, you end the intro, which is an important thing, you know, the intro and then ending it, that's like, you know, when you're writing, that's such a critical moment. It's, it's right. important, it carries weight because you understand what it means for the rest of the book. And you end your intro to your book by quoting Audre Lorde's A Litany of Survival. Yeah. Where she writes, 
So it is better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive. Why this quote here, right? When we know the weight of you're ending your intro, I'm placing the table like this is, you know, such an important thing. And how does that quote speak to your story so powerfully, powerfully that you would use it in such an important place? Yeah, yeah. I, I think first of all, because Audrey Lord is just like a very critical voice in my in, in my own life and has shaped me in so many different ways. Like when I think about my faith right now, like my faith <coughs> is, is is very much centered on reading the Bible through the lens of black liberation theology, reading the Bible through the lens of womanist uh, scholarship and theology, but also reading the Bible through the lens of black feminism. And when I think about Sister Outsider, I had to read it for class and we had to read Zombie, um, a, a new spell into my name. And there was a section in Zombie where Audrey Lord was like, I remember what it was like to be young and black and gay and lonely and how she separated those identities with the word and but she linked them as well. So one must deal with the reality of what it means to be black. One must deal with the reality of what it means to be young. One must deal with the reality of what it means to be gay and lonely. And I think about that and so much of that book shaped how Audre Lorde thought about surviving, thought about her own life, thought about her own oppression, thought about her own struggles, but also the ways in which she made something of it. She did not like she, she was just not the totality, her struggles was not the totality of her being, but she was someone who cared deeply about her own wholeness and her survival. And this is what I resonated with so deeply with that, 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 that litany, that poem. And when I think about a litany of survival, this is in some sense, almost like an ode, it's a sermon. It is a reminder. It is a continual, it's like the Psalms. A litany is like a Psalm. So this is, this could be called the Psalm of Audre Lorde that we were not, so we speak because we were never meant to survive. So survival for her was not just simply about wholeness, but survival was about power. Survival was about taking your power back from people who devalued you, who did, who, who, who disrespected you, who did not want to include you. And so when I thought about the opening of my book, particularly starting it back home, when think in, in my home, with the King James Version Bible in, 20, in 2020, thinking about this fire that's happening in the world and the ways in which people, particularly I'm thinking about Christians and, and most particularly about young black Christian, how young black women and men are trying to make sense of the ways in which the church and the country destroys us and silences us and erases us. Um, and, and how Audrey Lord is telling us that even in the midst of that, you must realize that you survived it all. You survived the worst of, of, of this world. You survived the worst of the church. You survived the worst of yourself because you included in this. So therefore you must speak. And so when I think about ending in that way, this, my story is about that. It is about how I survived the worst of myself, the country and the church, but also about how through this journey of failure and through this journey of faith, I found my liberation and my wholeness. And I found a faith worth actually holding on to. And I found a story that I knew that so many young black women and men uh, and, and broadly speaking, so many other people who were disillusioned with the country, disillusioned with the church, would need to 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 see 
uh, to say that, yo, I see you, that when you read this story, whatever you have gone through, whatever trauma you're facing, whatever struggles you're facing, I see you and here's the way forward. You must speak about what you went through and also tell the story of how you survived and how you became whole and free. Yeah, I love it. So, so good, man. Uh, it's, you know, when you talk about becoming like a, you know, a, a scholar of Baldwin or entering into the stories of someone like Audre Lorde, when you keep going with it with individuals, you know, the individual always opens us up to the universal. So people might have different doorways into a legacy of say the black <clears throat> prophetic Christian tradition, legacies of black liberation, or it could be other traditions. But when you connect with those people that for you become those sacred doors into a broader mm -hmm. legacy, it's so, it's just so special. No, so facts. powerful. Everybody has like, those are my two or three that like, opened up everything for me. It's not just about them, it's like opening me, opening me up to the whole Oh, yes. Man, so. Yeah, yeah, for real. Because like when I think about like the book and my story, the book follows a trajectory. It follows my Black Pentecostal upbringing, me going to Clemson and then getting involved in white churches, then me becoming disillusioned because of so much of the death and the hatred and the apathy and hostility that I face within white churches. But then also me dealing with my failure and the ways my wife and other people I felt, and then moving on to my, how I got free and how I got whole and how I found my liberation. And so, so much of this story, especially <clears> thinking <throat> about breaking open, is about me returning again and again and again to the Bible and Black literature. Uh, because I believe that just like when we read the story in, in, in the Bible, when we read so many of these stories, like the book of Nehemiah or the book of Jeremiah or the book of whoever, Hosea. Like the, we, we received them as divine revelation of what God wants to do in our lives, what God is doing in the world. I want to go back, you know, to black literature to say that that literature is sacred. The same way people back in old days, like, like found stories that gave them meaning, found faith, found wholeness, found freedom, found joy, found hope. It's the same way James Baldwin and Audre Lorde and Tony K. Bambara and Tony Morrison helped me find hope, help illuminate, you know, who I am and who I want to become. And they open up to me a tradition to say, this is the tradition that I want to be in. I don't have to prove myself. I can love myself unconditionally and I can be free and say, like, this is who I am. This is what I want. And this is where I find my faith. So, so, so good. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because you, you know, a lot of times when I, cool. you know, I have questions and I have a flow, but the, the person on will yeah. naturally anticipate where I want to go without realizing it or jump ahead of like, well, you really started to speak to something I was, you know, going to ask in a little bit. And I'm going to jump ahead to this. You know, you share a little bit growing up with, you know, the unique experience you had in the South and the legacy of life and faith you were born into, heading to college, being mm -hmm. in, you know, predominantly, or at least when it comes to the church in white spaces and with white forms of the mm -hmm. faith and, you know, people preaching about this white Jesus. Uh, because you brought up black feminism and womanist theology and black liberation theology, at what point did you first get introduced to black and womanist theology and what was that like for you personally when you're reading you know cone kelly brown douglas katie cannon Renita mm -hmm. Williams, or whoever it is for you mm -hmm. like 
Because for me, those are the names mm-hmm. of 37. And when I was in grad school, my focus mm-hmm. was on black and womanist theology. So I was, and it was a while, that was a long time mm-hmm. ago, it was like 13 mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. And I know what that experience was like for me when I'm brought into this tradition and this legacy, right? But we're obviously coming mm-hmm. from such different experiences mm-hmm. of what it means of growing up and being human in the United States of America. And even people mm-hmm. don't know how Cornel West has an early book called Prophesied Deliverance, too. Not everyone knows about his book and that. Yeah, which is, book. yeah. Which, by the way, this yeah. morning when I, lo- when I was looking at your website, I didn't know the name of your devotional. And I was like, I wonder if there's yeah. a connection there. That was like, not the Cornell. Yeah, okay, it was. Because when I see I was like, this feels. Yeah, honest. yeah, 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 yeah. It was a um, nod to Cornell. Yeah, it okay. was a nod to Cornell. Yeah, people, and a lot of people who I think are introduced to Cornell West later don't know about that earlier book, which is a great book. You know, Prophesied yeah. is, is amazing. Yeah, it is. But, you know, I feel like yeah. being introduced, not just reading, you know, Black literature as a whole, but specifically Black liberation theologians or womanist theologians, you know, and how it can hit you mm-hmm. and what it does when you first engage with this so mm-hmm. how when was that for you and on a personal level what was that like doing in you when you first read a cone or whoever it is? yeah 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 well it for me it was like i needed it because i was so trauma i was so traumatized in white churches and i was so traumatized with how i had become to you know what it made me and I was just so angry with what was going on inside of the larger society that I needed that I needed words. And like I got to the point, bro, and I'm still here. Like <laughs> I'm gonna just shoot it straight. I'm gonna keep it a buck. Like I don't know, like from from a from a spiritual theological standpoint, I don't know when the last time I picked up a book by a white person and finished it. Like I just don't. Like I don't know when was the last time that happened. Maybe oh, see, something about like Henry Nowen. My my first book's coming out May thirty first. I was gonna send you a copy, but now no, nah, I'm not even gonna. Send oh it come on, bro! I'm gonna read that. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna read that. Like I'm gonna read that. But like, but for real though, because like because like to to like to read white people's work was re traumatizing me. Like because the same the frameworks about faith was so similar. Like it was all very theoretical about God. It was all very theoretical about humanity, all very theoretical about Jesus. And it was a certain type of way where like, as M. Sean Copeland would say, they, they, like white theologians or white Christians didn't take into account the flesh. Like they didn't take into account the body and the ways in which like the body is a place of theology. And so as black women, you know, and, and black liberation theologians, and black feminists and even black 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 people and, and uh, those who, who are part of the black literary tradition, like they centered our stories and they centered our voices. And I started to realize that like when we believe that white theology is central and every other theology is or, or white theology is objective and every other theology is contextual, then we believe the white supremacist lie that white people are the center of the faith. And so for me, when I was leaving the white church after experiencing so much apathy and hostility, like I needed black voices to save me. Like I needed them to save me from myself. I needed them to save me from the failure. I needed them to save me from what other people had done and made me feel. And I'll never forget reading Baldwin 
when Baum was like, yo, <clears throat> what people do and make you endure is not a testament to your, to your inferiority, but to their <sighs> inhumanity and to their fear. And he said that if we had not loved, none of us would have survived. And when I think about love, I think about Bell Hooks, that, that love is about de- also decolonizing the ways in which we make people feel unloved. It's dismantling, dismantling <clears throat> theologies and ideologies and traditions that deny and destroy the body. It is embodying a faith like Jesus that says the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. But I've come that people may have life and live it in the fullest. So for me, as I read the likes of James Cone and the likes of Katie Cannon and Renita Williams, like you said, and Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas and, and, and M. Sean Copeland, and others, and even the ways in which they went to Morrison, they went to Baldwin, they went to Tony K. Bombard, they went to Richard Wright, they went to Alice Walker, because they understood something about black people and the sacredness and the ways in which people uh, must be reintroduced to say that what, what we experience of God and deserving of our embrace and is deserving of our exploration. And so, like, yeah, they started to open up a world, but then, like, it really healed my wounds. And that's why I still read them to this day. Like, for me, you know, to journey, as Baldwin would say, to that which I do not understand, but it's in the journey, it makes me better. So reading them and reading contemporary Black writers was making me better. It was making me whole. It was making me free. It was making me realize that, like, I didn't have to prove my self-worth. I didn't have to prove my humanity. I didn't have to prove who I was not. I didn't have to tap dance for white people, but I could be black. I could be young. I could be gifted. I can be be Christian and do all of that. I can be somebody who, who speaks to the religious lives of black folk and do it in ways that's creative and innovative and utilize writing as a mode and a medium of telling our stories, you know? And so as I read them, like I started to see myself more, and see that what I saw was actually indeed beautiful and it was worth loving and healing and being whole. And it was not just that. So like when I, when I, when I read womanist theology and black liberation theology, so like I, I kind of, it was like a trajectory for me. So I got introduced to comb and like, it was so much was about it, responding like, to like white people. Is that like grad me. school? Cause I feel like that's, that's one of the things where you're like, man, I wish. Yeah everybody could be introduced to this like vocabulary in this world and these writers, but it, yeah. it's still so often, especially in the yeah. past, it's changing now, but it was still so academic. It's like, if you're not in grad school, yes. most people, Facts. you know what I'm saying? So, so yeah, 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 like, yeah. So like, grad- my, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So like at that time, yeah, I was, cause I went to two seminaries before I got to Emory. I was oh, at two okay. conservative seminaries before I got to Emory, but like <laughs> I heard about Cone like through everyday people. I heard about, Katie Cannon through like black women, you know, and, and, and it was me hearing about M. Sean Copeland, me trying to figure out, you know, how do I be black and Christian? That was my fundamental question. Like how, like based on my experience in white churches, when I leave and as I'm leaving, like, how do I be black and Christian? How do I like, like dismantle the terrible ways I thought about myself and, and, and self-hatred like, and, 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 and lack of self-worth, like, how do I dismantle that? But also how do I, I hold on to something that I feel is, is so beautiful and so liberating and so freeing. And so it was in the context of like just everyday conversations on social media, even though I was a grad student, 
you know, I wasn't because I was at two conservative seminaries like James Cohen and Katie Cannon. They were like heretics. They were the worst of the worst. Um, but it was through like social media and others and, 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 and going really, you know, it was when I went to, it was when I went to, uh, uh, the national museum of African-American arts, history, and culture in DC, where that was my sojourn as I was leaving white churches. It was like the kind of final step to my freedom. Like I went there and it was almost as if I was baptized in blackness again. Like I went there and, and, and like, it, it got me free. It was like an immersive experience. And that is where I learned so much about our culture and so much about it. And it encouraged to go to these places. And when I went, it was no looking back because I knew I knew where I needed to be. And it was not where I was around white people, but I needed to be back around us and utilizing the best of my work for our freedom. Yeah, once you see, you cannot unsee. You know, when you're on that trajectory, Thanks. yeah, oh, that's, I want to, uh, you know, you, you, you share how those voices, you know, were such a critical part of saving you and helping you, you know, reclaim, you know, your sense of self, which I love. But also, for me, the tradition of whether it's liberation, theology, womanism, that it's coming from the Black experience, but for me, it's for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I, that is for everybody to learn, to grow, to be transformed, challenged, critiqued by, et cetera, for the sake of a more hopeful future. So Thanks. from your perspective, you know, why is it so powerful and what unique value do the voices of black people, of black women in the United States of America reflecting theologically yes. in their life with God yeah. bring to everybody, not just the, not just the black no, people, but to everybody. No, that's such a great question, bro. And like, and, and this is a question that I'm continually writing into. Like, the, you know, what's so crazy, like for me, like, like not crazy, but like, I, like incredible, like in, in the most ways possible, in the best ways possible. Is that like for me at one point, like I was just a terrible person. Like I was just a terrible Christian, terrible person. And so much it was because my theology made me terrible. It formed me and gave me power to be a terrible person. But like I was, I, I've been looking back at like my work in the academy and in public over the last year. And I realized that like through so many of my relationships and through so many of my conversations, I have actually legitimately changed. And, and, and like oftentimes we do things without noticing, but then I started to notice. And I realized that so many of the voices that I name, so many of the stories that I tell, especially in my book, my book is a love letter to black women, a love letter to black men, a love letter to black faith, a love letter in and literature. It is a love letter to all of us in the ways that all of them taught me how to love myself rightly. And when I think about womanists and feminists, black feminists, uh, and, and even black men, who would identify as black feminists, which I would identify that way. I, that this, when I'm thinking about Mark Anthony Neal uh, out of Duke University, who writes in this book, New Black Man, on like black feminism is a commitment to centering and being formed and shaped by the voices of black women. So for me, black women 
are so formative. When I'm thinking about my papers that I've been writing lately, Tony K. Bambara, uh, June Jordan, M. Sean Copeland. I mean, these voices are forming who I am. Toni Morrison, Katie Cannon, Emily Towns. All of these Black women voices are forming who I am. And the reason why they're forming who I am is because their commitment, number one, to liberation, but number two, to wholeness. And so when you think about liberation, one of the failures and of, of Black liberation theology, as, as Renita, Reverend Dr. Renita Weems would say, is that it was focused particularly on the ways in which Black men were treated in society. But oftentimes at the, expen- at the expense of Black women, and especially Black LGBTQ. Uh, if we think about like, uh, uh, if we're thinking about uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and the ways in which he was criticized, or if you think about the way that Black women were, their stories were told in Black male literature, that they were like chaotic or like wayward in, in so many ways. But Black women took that story back and took the pen and focused it particularly on Black women and Black LGBTQ. So when I thought about their voices, I realized that if I was the only one benefiting for liberation, from my ideas of liberation, then my ideas was not liberation, but my ideas was erasure and exploitation. That liberation, if it is indeed to be liberation, it must be intersectional. It must take into account the multiple ways marginalized communities are uh, hurt and harmed and destroyed. But then also I'm thinking about healing and thinking about Jesus, the way that black women read Jesus, that we just could not be concerned about our liberation. But we must also take that next step to think about our wholeness, our agency, our autonomy, our freedom. So when I think about uh, June Jordan and her poem, poem about my rights, my name is my own, my own, my own. Wrong is not my name. She is in some sense gesturing toward this reality that you may want us You may want us free, but your ideas of freedom does not take into account my lived experience. So as I thought about their work and my work and even how it shaped Shouting the Fire, how I wrote the story, I wanted Black people, when they showed up, I wanted to talk about masculinity. I wanted to talk about sexuality. I wanted to talk about gender. I wanted to talk about literature. I wanted to talk about faith. I wanted to talk about our stories, our failures, our dreams, our hopes, our possibilities, because we as Black people hold multitudes and we deserve those stories to be being told. And the more that I read Black women, the more that I read Black LGBTQ, the more that it, it like I reshape my relationships and shape like the conversation partners and shape these things, it made me better. And like to think about Baldwin as a black queer man and to be the person that's shaping my faith as a heterosexual black man, as a black cishet man of faith, for me, that is my embodiment of love. I want to center the voices that even in my own marginalization, I want to center the voices that's been marginalized so that we can even all, so that all of us 
even in the midst of our tension and struggles, all of us can find freedom. Man, I mean, there's so much there I want to respond to. One is, I feel like reading womanist theologians who, when you really know, they were, they were writing a long time ago. You know, right. now with intersectionality being a word that people are so much more familiar with, but I remember back then when I'm reading womanist theologians, they didn't, at that point, to my knowledge, use the word intersectionality, but they were talking about multidimensional forms of mm -hmm. oppression, which mm -hmm. was an earlier way before it actually caught on where they were, to me, so far ahead of that, because they could say, right. this is why it's different from feminism, you know, for white mm -hmm. feminists. That's why it's different for us. This is why it's different for black men than us, because this mm -hmm. multidimensional race, class, you know, um, sex, like this experience we have is such a different one. So one, to me, I look back, I'm like, they were saying those things way before it was catching on in the more public discourse, especially in the mm -hmm. academy. Mm -hmm. And also when I, you know, I don't know if it was Monica Coleman or Angela Parker when they were on here, might've been both. But when we were talking about womanist theology for me as a white cis, you know, a heterosexual male Christian, right? Pastor. Mm -hmm. I'm like in my twenties as I'm in grad school doing that. And the way those voices have shaped me, I think when I think about, I think about this with your work and how white people are obviously reading your work and are going to be challenged, transformed, hopefully by the work you're doing. And of course the legacy that you're a part of, right? It isn't just your voice. It's the symphony mm -hmm. that you're you know, obviously a part of. And I'm like one looking back, even at that point, I'm like, Kelly Brown Douglas gifted me with the earthly, bodily, day-to-day -day Jesus. Mm -hmm. Where her, and I'll never forget this, and other people are saying it now, which I think is funny, but I'm like, her critique of the creeds, right? Which creeds are important, riverbanks of the mm -hmm. faith, we're all hopping on a moving train, all right, mm -hmm. cool, good stuff. There's empire and politics involved in those things, that's a different conversation. But for her, it's like, you can look at the creeds and you can essentially agree cognitively with all these things and still be a white supremacist. You can agree with all these things mm -hmm. and still dehumanize people who are different than you because those things are so metaphysical and conceptual. It, completely extracts Jesus from his day-to-day -day social and political and relational environment that you don't mm -hmm. even need that. And even with evangelicals, like the gospel is the atonement. It's like, you don't, you also don't need the earthly day-to-day -day liberating Jesus for that. You just need his blood, basically. You know, you don't even need mm -hmm. him every day. And so for me, when I think about your work and how the work that is flowing from black voices is not just for black voices. It's for everybody, especially in the U S especially for people who are Christians. I'm like, just that alone, that alone, what I said, which is one thing changes so much. Cause when, when Kelly Brown Douglas identifies Jesus's earthly ministry is defined by his solidarity with the oppressed and his identification with the marginalized, just that alone, I'm like that completely if you allow it to, it has the power to reorient your understanding of mm -hmm. what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus day to day, and what mm -hmm. love and liberation actually looks like. You know, that's why for me, I'm like, there's this whole other lineage 
that more and more folks like yourself are are the in the same way other people were the uh, were the open doors for you. People like nice. you, which is so amazing, become the open door for people who look and feel and sound more like me to enter into this different stream within this larger flow of Christianity that actually has the ability to open us up to the, how wide the river really is and the liberating Facts. of God. So Facts. I just think that Facts. work is so, so important, man. So I'm, Facts, I'm, bro. Yeah, man. I'm uh, The way it's coming into like when it was so much more academic back then, so so few people had access to it, but now shouting in the fire now these other books that are more accessible it's just it's doing something different for people today man so i just want to reaffirm that and name that you know in the ways in which you will have and will continue to become that open door for so many folks as well um i want to jump i'm gonna go backwards because i I don't want to miss this question because you made me jump ahead when you mentioned stuff now i jumped ahead now i gotta go back all right but i i do want to ask this you write Quote, I thought about the ways both Baldwin and Jesus shaped how I thought about myself, my black body, my world, this country. Um, when, I must have missed the word, when I wrote it, my mind replied passages I'd read of each. I might have misquoted that when I went there. Their profound concern for love and liberation, the way they stood with those who felt unseen, unheard, marginalized, and left out, kind of like what we were just talking about even when with the uh, Kelly Brown Douglas, you know, reintroducing people to the earthly Jesus. Both meant, referring to Baldwin and Jesus, both meant so much to me and gave my life such deep meaning. The only thing is, this was a lie. It wasn't Jesus nor James Baldwin who radicalized me. It was white people, apathetic white people. Can you please open that up a bit more? Because I think that's just so important. Open that up a bit more for us and explain the words and the heart of those words. These people are shaping you, but that's not what radicalized me. It was apathetic white people that did that. What is Facts. the energy, the life? The yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was really their responses to, to, to black people dying um, and their responses to Donald Trump and how we kept saying how much the ways in which white people were siding with Donald Trump was hurting us um, and, and, and the ways in which like, they protected white power and white supremacy and didn't take into account that they were not the only people who were experiencing pain. And so whenever you see people as, as less than, then you will not take into account what hurts them. Uh, whenever you devalue other people's humanity, then you won't embrace the legitimacy of their story. And so when I think about that hostility and that apathy, it was pretty much about the way that they saw us and and the value that they saw of our lives. The whole statement of Black Lives Matter is a more theological and political statement about the values, the value of Black life inside of society and, and, and the ways in which how the society is set up against us and has long been. And so as I was preaching, teaching, leading in the space and becoming increasingly disoriented with it, it was the app. It first was the apathy in the sense of like when, when we were going through like racial reconciliation stuff, like people were not even concerned about it. It was just like, OK, it's just another thing. But like for many of us, those of us who um, were like trying to racial, do better. It's racial reconciliation. Day. Yeah, like, yeah, find, yeah, find yeah. A black, yeah. Find a black dude and yeah. give him a hug. All right. <laughs> yeah, facts. Yeah, it was like that. It was like, you know, this kind of like charity and it wasn't like this commitment to justice and and what is justice but like seeing somebody as human and actually take into account building a world that actually makes them feel like they're loved and seen and protected 
That's justice. They weren't concerned about justice. They were concerned about how we can be used for them to be seen as better than they actually were. And so as I started to meet with the leadership and meet with the pastors, ultimately they told me like, yo, you, you know, like so race just, is becoming just for too clarity much. for the people listening and even for myself. So you were on staff at like a white mega church. Yeah. So actually at this moment I was on, I, I was non-paid staff, but I was on staff. So I was pastoral intern. Okay. Um, and I was pastoral intern at, at, at this church uh, in this moment. And yeah, bro, I was, I was a pastoral intern at, at this moment and preaching, teaching, leading and leading small groups and, and, and things like that. Um, so they were grooming me to be like this minister in this, in this, in this space. Um, and so, yeah, as I was leading those groups, it, it was, it, it was the apathy toward like our lives and our deaths, but it was like a hostility toward our pain and our voices. <clears throat> and so, yeah, the, as Baldwin and Cone and others were shaping me, it really was the hostility that looked, that sent me to looking for different voices and different experiences. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, I just, I had a name that, and I, I just wanted to ask that because to me, that's such a, you know, there's the people who are reshaping your imagination, but then there's the felt experience of our life and people on people that also is impacting us greatly, you know, mm-hmm. to talk about the apathy or I'm sure in, in a lot of the space, not just apathy, but antagonism, you know, facts. Hatred, yeah, facts. opposition, you know, in, in those types of ways, uh, is so important. Um, let's see. We got like ten minutes left. Unless is it is it a son or a daughter who's back there who's sleeping? Yeah, my daughter. Yeah, my daughter. She just she just got up. She just, just got you? up. If if yeah, it's just me. Yeah, it's just me. <laughs> well, no. Let's. Uh, if, I if, mean, if, if if you got, I mean, I got I got a good like one more. If if you got like one more question, I can do a good one more question. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, what's the yeah. what's the what's the age of your? You have two kids. She ten. She so my boy. My boy is uh three, and my daughter is ten months. Oh, that's that's similar. We have a. I'm ahead of you, but we have like a five and a three year old. So it's wow. similar. You have like a two to three ish, then you have another. Yeah, yeah. Are you yep, already? Yep. That's already full time. That's already full time work right there. Bruh, bruh. It is. <laughs> and I wish, you know, like as much as people talk to me about like being an author, like like I do wish that people would talk to me about just like life and and and, and things like that. Like like, you know, so much of my book is not just simply about what white people do. Like so much of my book is like how we live and how we love and how we create and how we get better. And like, that's so much about the story that I tell, like even with my mother and my grandmother and my granddaddy, like I'm going back home to say like their stories are worth telling and their stories are worth preserving. So I I just wish more people, especially with black people in books, like I wish more people would talk particularly about, you know, the beauty and not just seeing that disorder. So like uh, Sadia Hartman in her book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiences, she has a quote where she says that oftentimes people only see the disorder and they miss all the beauty and the ways that black people create life and turn bare need into an arena of elaboration. So like, yeah, every day is about that. It's taking bare need, you know, and turning that joint into an arena of elaboration. And that really back to your question, but like, that's what, that's what like black lit, Black womanists, black feminists, black liberation theology traditions, that's what they did. They opened up the Bible and myself and turned it into an arena of elaboration. 
somewhere to sing and dance and play in. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, the, your daughter gets priority over at the last question of this podcast, and just the way you ended it is just uh, is just so good in the simplicity and the beauty of the everyday. You know, people mm-hmm. who are the most profound prophetic voices who are shouting in the fire and, and calling mm-hmm. out systems that need to be dismantled for the sake of everybody flourishing are also mm-hmm. grabbing their daughter out of their crib at 10 months and spending Thanks. the day doing the day-to-day things that are which is, which is a, they're all a part of the same thing. Facts. You know, me Facts. loving my son and being like, how do I create a new trajectory for him that's different from my own experience, you know, as a part of whatever else work mm-hmm. I do. And that's the beauty of writing and life and art and spirituality is the Facts. spirit teaching us and allowing all of those to become one thing in our lives. So, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. man, let's, let, let's, let, let's just end it right there, man. I appreciate you taking the time, dude. Oh man, you know it, bro. You know it. Anytime, bro. And and I'll make sure I connect on offline. You heard you heard what he said. He's no longer reading any books by white folks. So when people are opening up boxes, because I'm <laughs> him, he ain't getting one. So you won't see any Instagram stories from him saying, "Oh, uh, no, nah, he ain't getting one." <laughs> nah, I got oh, you, man. bro. I'm gonna read it, bro. I promise. I promise. Uh, I'm gonna read it. I appreciate it, honestly, man. Thank thank you uh, for the time. No doubt, bro. No doubt. You be blessed, bro.